0: Are you ready for Good Talk? And hello there, Friday's episode of The Bridge, it's Good Talk. It's hard It's hard to actually call it Good Talk after the kind of week we've had, uh, but we're going to try and, I'm not sure whether we can make any sense of it all, but we're going to try and think through the week and the impact it's had on, on, on all of us. Chantelle Hebert is in uh, Banff, Alberta today, and uh, Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm in uh, where am I? I'm in Stratford. Stratford, <laughs> Ontario today. <laughs> I had to check the map. Um, okay, and when I say a difficult week to describe, I think we all know what we're talking about. It's been a traumatic week on uh, on a lot of friends, And as we Getting near to the end of this week, um, with the situation still very much on edge uh, in the Middle East, and especially in Israel and Gaza, um, I'd, I'd like to try and get a sense from each of you of, uh, you know, based on where you've been, what you've seen, what you've heard. I mean, it's awfully hard to go anywhere this week and not, I know, I know at least for me, to not end up having a discussion with somebody, strangers, friends, relatives, um, about what happened in Israel last Saturday morning and what's happened since in both Israel and Gaza uh, in the war between Israel and Hamas. Um, I, I try and get a sense from each of you on what you've been thinking, what you've been observing um, on this subject over the last days. Uh, Chantal, why don't you start?
1: Okay, uh, so obviously I was in uh, two different places this week—Montreal—and uh, uh, then on my way to Alberta, uh, found the same consternation in both places. Uh, obviously, but I also found it interesting. That, as you know, there's the there has been this social media—you can call it a conversation if you want. But I would call it a dialogue of the deafs. Um, between various uh, academic institutions in this country, some unions uh, engaging on their definition of what they believe resistance is supposed to look like. and Apparently, to some of them, it looks like some of the things that have happened in Israel last weekend. I have not found that discussion at street level, on the ground, with people going about their daily lives. What I found instead is... um, a collective sense not only of dismay horror, but in the in the in the case of the jewish community a lot of sorrow it is not very hard to find people that you know that actually know or have family or friends somewhere uh in israel stuck in this or uh, whose faith is uh not known but after a At the end of a week, this this quiet has been joined by a collective sense of insecurity uh, in the Jewish community. I'll give you just one example, which is a Montreal example. Montreal's Jewish hospital today is operating on the basis of emergency surgery only. Everything else has been canceled. Its daycare center is shut down. Why? Uh, for fear that uh, calls for a day of anger on the part of Hamas will translate into acts of violence in this country. Uh, and I think that those measures, hopefully, are not necessary, but the fact that they are being taken uh, just illustrates the, the collective sense of insecurity that has a community. I have family that lives in the Outremont, There is a very strong and very visible Jewish community there. Uh, I think everyone is kind of uh, wishing they had eyes behind their backs this week, uh, looking out for their kids uh, and looking out for their uh, families and their institutions.
0: Bruce?
2: Well, I think the first thing that I've been thinking is that the world is a less safe and secure and stable place than it has been. Um, and it wasn't particularly safe and secure and stable before this attack. It, we'd been seeing a trend line of uh, growing anxiety about whether or not the mechanisms and the relationships that had kind of kept the world from erupting into conflict, um, you know, have been breaking down. Uh, and I think that the reaction to the uh, the terrorist attack has not made me think more confidently that the world will find its center again and, and to the degree that it had one and, and find a way to, to stabilize. One of the reasons why I think that is that the role that the United States has typically tried to play over many decades in the past, it can't really be counted on to play that role. Not because there aren't um, some good uh, Americans in leadership positions who would like to have a more stable and um, clear position taken by the United States, but because there are too many others who don't want that, who don't see things the same way, who pursue a political agenda of disruption, who've adopted ideas that uh, don't don't lend themselves easily to America playing a stabilizing role. Um, on the positive side of that uh, of that divide. Uh, I watched Anthony Blinken uh, yesterday, the U.S. Secretary of State. Um, and if, in his press conference, um, you'll see a, a relatively long clip where he's describing how he reacted to the facts and the images and the pictures that he saw. Uh, and it was very personal. It was, uh, I thought it was very powerfully articulated. It seemed very authentic to me, and it seemed like the kind of leadership that uh, that people expect from someone in such an important position. And in part, I say that to go to the point that Chantal was touching on, which is that there are obviously a lot of people, the majority, I believe, the large majority, who are horrified uh, at what happened. There are also a very large number of people who believe that the problem of antisemitism is uh, real. It's growing and needs to be taken more seriously. Um, but we're finding out in the way that pe- some people have reacted to this situation, that there are people who who want to use this moment to litigate their frustrations with the Netanyahu government or their worries about the Palestinian people. And this is, this is creating um, a bit of a divide. It's creating friction. It's um and we're finding, and I'll stop on this point, we're finding that uh, social media in particular can't be trusted in terms of the quality of the information uh, that is conveyed, but also doesn't do much to help uh, bring people together. It accelerates division, uh, it heightens uh, a sense of antagonism, and it creates more stress uh, and requires it almost, it seems, uh, of politicians that they react more quickly, sometimes more hastily than is advisable to situations. And I'm not saying that in respect of any particular one, just that the, the syndrome that we've got because of this uh, instantaneous reaction uh, syndrome that is built on social media, I think, uh, is very difficult. Um, if what we're looking for is a way to stabilize a difficult and unstable situation
0: you know i'll um you know i I totally agree with both of you on the social media question but i, I also want to put it in this context that no no other story that i've covered in my you know fifty years in the in the business has developed the kind of um uh, discussion on the part of uh, viewers, discussions a polite way of putting it, uh, on, on the part of viewers and listeners and readers, than the Middle East question and specifically the Israel-Palestinian question. Um, now, I know the week started with this being an Israel-Hamas question, but it's, it's once again developed into the Israel-Palestinian question for a number of different reasons. But in all the coverage the, that I've been a part of, and both from the region and and from here, there, there's no win on this story In trying to cover this story, whether it's um, traditional legacy media or social media. Um, it is, you are constantly criticized from one side or the other, that you're biased. Um, it's really, really hard uh, to cover and to tell a story, especially now in this era of, uh, mistrust of uh, uh, institutions in, uh, uh, including and perhaps especially so the media. Um, so I need, I think we need to continue to place it in, in that context too the, this story and you watched it over this this last seven days how quickly it moved from the initial shock story to what has you know uh, been the, the issue for decades. Um, and there are two very, very different sides on this. And as Chantal mentioned in her first answer, it's playing out now in, in universities and in, in unions, um, you know, across the country. And I assume uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, about the NDP in a few moments' time, uh, their convention. It may, it's likely to come up there as well. Um, Chantal, you wanted to make a point here.
1: I think the experience has been that the Israel-Palestine story was always a, a no-win story for anyone who covered that for a, a long time. But the social media and the internet has made it easier for the mistrust to um, target the people who are covering the story. I have a friend who once served as a, an ombudsperson for a, a, one of large Canadian media organization, Um, who told me afterwards that no issue brings more uh, complaints than the Israel-Palestine issue. No matter what is being broadcast, uh, it brings uh, a flood of complaints from both sides. Uh, And the social media, Bruce was talking about accelerating divisions. That is exactly the mechanism that we saw in play over the pandemic with the social media accelerating divisions. You cannot replace uh, talk and conversation uh, by messages and gut feelings on the social media. And it is happening unsurprisingly to this story uh, in a way that uh, sometimes makes you wonder whether the social media allows people to completely leave aside their their humanity. It is a no-brainer to know that there is absolutely no but in a sentence that is about children and innocent people being killed. Uh, Or no, they asked for it, or they're getting back what they did. Uh, Because when you talk about terrorism, and this is terrorism, there is no, no cause that has ever been advanced by terrorism. Uh, and, and by a lack of humanity. And that is increasingly what we're going to see in, in, in this conflict. There is also, I'm not sure that Canada's institutions are, are really, or have really been um, doing efficient work in encouraging dialogue over uh, screaming matches. Uh, and I'm struck by the fact that it is within institutions that the conversation is the least productive. It's much more constructive, I've found, at ground level uh, and much more reasonable than within institutional channels who should know better. And I find that very troubling on both sides uh, of uh, the conversation.
0: You know, we talked the other, you know, two weeks ago about the um, kind of lack of understanding of our own history on the Second World War as a result of the guy in the gallery uh, story. And... You know, what I've witnessed this week, and I include myself in this uh, at times, in an appalling uh, amount of ignorance of, of the history of this story. Um, you see it especially so on, on social media when, uh, when rants uh, start. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, they don't understand. They don't understand where this, that this has been at play for a long time and why it's been at play and what's, what's happening. Uh, but I agree with you, there is no but in the sentence that describes last Saturday morning. Um, I think, uh,
2: if I can, Peter, I wanted to pick up a couple of points that Chantal has raised that really resonated with me, elaborate on them a little bit from my standpoint. I think that what you describe as being a history of difficulty for journalists to cover this particular situation, this conflict, I think is absolutely right. But it also seems to me that we've seen that, With the rise of social media, and and I think it probably bears mentioning that X or Twitter is worse than uh, other social media platforms uh, in terms of its impact in this way. Uh, But we see other situations where um, humanity seems to be replaced by um, a rapid, angry response uh, syndrome. Uh, We saw it elevated to a political art form by donald trump you remember the whataboutism in uh, charlestown Uh, that was shocking to many people that he could have reacted to the situation that was going on there by saying the good people on both sides and um, i remember thinking that we crossed a line at that point as a civilization or a set of societies that observed things uh that we should be horrified by and all of a sudden there was a political argument that intervened and said yeah but you don't have to be horrified by this because of that and there has been more of that uh since then we saw a dynamic around covid and vaccinations and masks that became everything became uh, politicized to the point where people would harmful things to their health and the health of their loved ones, because they've been told that these ideas were the ideas of a a politician that they don't like. Um, This bill is going to keep on coming due, unless we find some way to solve it, and the costs of that are going to continue to get higher. I think the other thing, to take it back to the role of the media, The challenge for journalists that's been growing for a long time is uh, if you do more than just report the facts that happen, if you add color and commentary, if you have a social media account wherein you express opinions about things, then you train the audience to look for your opinion. Every time you're covering something, I'm not really talking about Canadian journalists necessarily. I'm just talking about the, the the way in which the media come across to the consumer now has legitimized, uh, consumers saying, well, I wonder if they're really, um, if they really want to fight uh, anti-Semitism enough, or I wonder if they've got a perspective on this that's opposite to the one that I should think, rather than I'm just going to consume the facts, I want to trust the media for the facts, and I don't know that there's any real blame place there. I think it's just a a series of dynamics that have developed over time that have put us in a situation where um, even the most traditional media Uh, that try to hew to that line of fact reporting are struggling with the choices. I've seen people on social media in the last 24 hours talking about why won't CBC or CTV uh, call this a terrorist group, Hamas. And I think that those organizations, as far as I can tell, they haven't explained why they won't. Um, Probably they should. uh, Because at some point, if people hear that, it does erode trust in those media organizations because they can say, well, look, I I think it clearly was terrorist uh, action. And regardless, to Chantal's point, of of whether you feel that the Israeli government has been doing a good job or the right thing vis-a-vis Palestine, it doesn't change whether or not that was terrorism. So I think there are questions for the media to grapple with that have been growing for a long time. I don't know what the, the answers are, but I think more transparency and some some um, kind of hard choices are in the in the works for them going forward too. A
1: um, couple of points here. Uh, yes, I believe the BBC. Well, I don't believe I have retweeted the BBC explanation for its stance. You can agree or disagree with it, but it's historical, and uh, the person writing pointed out that. They also uh, declined to bow under the pressure of Margaret Thatcher to describe RIA activists and militants as terrorists back then when the troubles uh, were ongoing in in Ireland. I think the CBC has also provided an explanation. You can accept it or not. Uh, You can argue, I believe, uh, that you would have a point to say, given that Hamas has been... um, labeled a terrorist organization by the government of Canada some time ago, it would be totally possible to mention that, uh, when talking about these events, but, but they, they both organizations and others, because that is also the practice, um, I believe on CNN and in, in a lot of uh, mainstream media outlets that cover conflicts. But as to the notion that, um, mistrust has been built by opinion or that it has been uh, increased by social media? Possibly. But those of us who covered news, and I did that for a long time before I became a columnist, in polarized situations in this country know really well, and I think Peter would know that too, that when you cover a polarized situation and you are saying things that displease one side even if it's totally fact-based, you will be shot as the messenger. Uh, and I'll just go back to the years uh, when I covered the constitution and the Quebec sovereignty debate. Alternatively, from one week to the next, I was either a sovereigntist or a federalist. Uh, I've also been a, a liberal, a new Democrat, a right-wing person, a lefty. Uh, so this this tendency has always been there to, to, to not want to hear things that you don't jibe with your sense or to label as opinion, what is a fact. Yeah. Uh, someone yesterday responded, I merely posted the BBC article uh, about not using terrorism. I uh, didn't express an opinion And someone retweeted that I had uh, given uh, CBC a break to do fake news. There was no mention of the CBC in any way, shape, or form in the message I put online. Uh, But it was just a rejection of uh, even the title of the story, which said the BBC explains why it's not using the word terrorist. So there are people who will not hear I, I've had the experience prior to the last referendum of doing briefings uh, to get, give my sense from what I saw on the ground that uh, maybe it was going to be a lot closer the result of the 1995 referendum than people on Parliament Hill and around the federal government believed. What was the reaction to that? the spin coming from that government was that I was a Sovereignist.
2: Yeah. Um, Look, I agree so- with you, Chantal, that that has always been a thing. I think what um, may be different, and you might or may not agree about this, but it, it, is two things, really. One, we're sitting now in the middle of a culture war that has, that has taken on a dimension Um, and a speed of sound that it didn't have before. So that every single issue, whether it's gender pronouns in uh, Saskatchewan or these horrible attacks in Israel or fill in the blank, it, it all becomes, um, compressed into this. Are you on my side of the culture war or on the other? And so there are more issues around which people make that simple calculation. Chantal is, um, on my side of the culture war or on the other side of the culture war, are you
1: trying to avoid saying that i may be woke
2: (laughs) i'm saying that i (laughs) I can live with anyone about where you are in the culture war (laughs) whatever you want (laughs) and i think that you know but but the other thing is that your your point about um so the linkage for me is social media is is really evident when i see things happening like peter will put a question into a promotional piece for the podcast (laughs) and he gets trashed for being, um, something that he's not for the assumption that he said something that he didn't, um, and this has happened now three or four times in the last month and i'm watching it a little bit with amusement and i can tell by the look on your face Chantal, that you're a little bit amused yes, welcome welcome <laughs> to the world of
1: those of us who have had to live with titles that we didn't write over the top right? let's call them certain stories
2: and, and but, but th- there are some things where peter will say something um and someone will misinterpret what he's saying because they're so enraged by the the fact that's being discussed or the issue that's being discussed that they don't they don't hold back enough to to think about whether the words are actually saying the thing that they think that they're being said so the acceleration effect it's almost like um gasoline ready to be poured on anything uh that could be flammable um and I, it, that's not healthy and I don't know how we're gonna ever get out of that now that we're so deep into it. But I, I do think I, I would make the case that those two elements are different from the that truth, which has always been there, which is that if you're a reporter, you're going to be disliked by the side that is on the other side of the question about uh, sovereignty or
0: or what have you. Okay. Let me clean up a, a couple of things before we uh, take our first break. I was just trying to help you a little bit. There, yeah, that I, good. You're no, welcome. Actually, I did research on those anonymous uh, comments that came in and it, it's tr- they trace right back to your IP address there, Bruce. <laughs> Just trying to
2: make a conversation. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Um, no, I, what, <laughs> what I was going to uh, say controversy. is controversy. Yeah, what I was going to say was this whole debate around the T word, the terrorist word, um, is one, as Chantel mentioned, that uh, has been around for decades, literally. Um, and the BBC, the CBC have the, the same kind of policy. So do uh, you know, quite a few other news organizations uh, in different parts of the world on that word. I can tell you that from, uh, you know, I left the CBC many years ago now. So, uh, uh, but I can tell you that when I was there, there were many debates inside about the the use of that word or the non-use of that word. Um, and, it, you know, in the end, you come to a decision as a news organization and, and you and you live with it. Um it wasn't popular uh, on the part of some people. It was very popular on the, on the part of some other people. On the basic question of this issue being a no-win situation, um, there were times uh, in the heat of, uh, uh, of this story, which has, you know, has burned hard a number of times over uh, the past few decades, um, in the heat of it where you would take some comfort in knowing that neither side – um, uh, was in agreement of the way you were doing the journalism. One day you were accused of a you know a pro-Israeli bias. The next day you were accused of a pro-Palestinian bias, um, and y- you'd sort of sit back and say, "Well, you know, we must be doing something right because both of them are upset at us." Well, that's an oversimplification of the job, obviously, and what you're trying to accomplish, um, but. As I said, and I think Chantelle agreed, no other story uh, that we've faced in our, in our careers has prompted the kind of um, uh, backlash against the media on the way it covers it than the the Middle East story, generally, specifically uh, Israel Palestinian uh, story. Um, there's more to say on this, and we're going to say it, but um, we got to take a we got to take a quick break, and here it is. Okay, we're back. Um, This is the Friday episode of The Bridge. It's Good Talk. Chantella's in uh, Banff, Alberta today, looking out the window, I'm sure, at a spectacular sight, which, uh, you know, those mountains that surround Banff are the Rockies, obviously. But uh, those particular views in Banff are are something to behold, Um, ones uh, you never forget. Bruce is in Ottawa, I'm in uh, Stratford, Ontario. You're listening on SiriusXM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favourite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel, whatever platform you're uh, enjoying uh, or listening or learning or mad at, (laughs) we welcome you to the conversation. Okay, I want to bring up, because this trust issue keeps bubbling along, and, you know, Bruce said at one point, you know, we're looking for transparency on so many different levels and whether it's the media being transparent about the way they do their job, um, uh, how they get their information, who they're talking to, who they're not talking to uh, in in trying to transmit the story. That's one thing, but a a very interesting thing happened yesterday. Um, And I want to give a bit of a shout out. I didn't hear it personally, but I've been reading about it today. Um, Dylan Robertson, he's a reporter with Canadian Press, with CP. He was at the technical briefing yesterday that was given by Global Affairs Canada. The ministers had spoken earlier in the day, and this was a technical briefing by officials on how, how Canada was trying to get people out of um, of Israel, their flights from Tel Aviv to Athens and then onwards home. Um now, technical briefings are, uh, are common. They happen around lots of different things. And, you know, public servants usually give those briefings. And uh, their, their names, they're, they're asked to be, and the media agrees that they're uh, going to be anonymous. They don't give their names. So this was happening yesterday. We're talking about, like, basically airline reservations, right? A um, little more complicated, perhaps, than that. But that's basically what it was about. So, Dylan Ta- Robertson gets up in the in the technical briefing and pushes back against the sudden anonymity the Department Global Affairs Canada granted itself. And he said, and "This is the way he's reported to have said: I just want to urge your department to stop with the business of unattributed sources. You're all people who testified publicly just yesterday. It's quite ridiculous." And this contributes to mistrust and misinformation. So, I thought that was pretty good on his part. Uh, he, he didn't get them to, to uh, shed their anonymity. But he made the point, because it goes back to this issue of, um, of trust, mistrust, and misinformation that ends up out there. What... Um, What do we think about
2: that? Can you just add a little bit more, Peter? What exactly was he uncomfortable with that they were...
1: I think that uh, uh, what he means is when you go to a technical briefing, the rule is, uh, and I'm going to use the lingo here, uh, not for attribution except to senior government officials. So you don't actually name the people. You know who they are. But when you report, you're always using senior government officials, senior government officials. Um, And I'm guessing that uh, his point was that uh, not being able to put a name to something as innocuous as the logistics of how we are getting people out of Tel Aviv, kind of threw a layer of opacity on the issue that was unnecessary and probably when some way to say someone is pulling strings uh, under the guise of anonymity, and the media is playing along with it. But Peter, if I have not been accurate,
0: go right ahead. No, no, no. That set me no, straight. No, 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 no. I think that's exactly what happened.
2: Well, uh, I can think of some reasons on the other side. Um, I mean, I'm not in favor of opacity for opacity's sake, but. I do think that if if we expect people to work in the public sector, uh, first of all, it's not an easy choice for a lot of people to make for different reasons, um, but uh, let's set that issue aside. It is a more difficult choice if you expect people to have their names uh, associated with the work that they're doing in their jobs to try to solve a crisis situation Especially if we know, as we've just been talking about, that the nature of how people respond to these things is they want to find out who's making the wrong decision that they can be harshly critical of. Now, I'm not trying to say that people who are making bad decisions should find opacity as a solution to that problem. But if the question is, is there any scenario where it would make sense not to require these officials names to be used in News coverage, I can think I can think that that could make sense. Yeah.
1: I would uh, uh, have two points on this. The first is that I believe that if we went down that road, it wouldn't add very much uh, except open up background briefings, which are basically about providing background to uh, gotcha journalism, a uh, bit of a sentence taking out of context, because, uh, because at that point, you would be using also clips, uh, images, uh, and I, I suspect it would lead to the disappearance uh, or or a reduction in the already not numerous enough background briefings. No question. For okay. instance, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada, to take a different example, have has developed a practice to have people from the court not not ju- the justices, obviously, come and explain the rulings that they are about to give. Why? Because we would get those rulings at 9 45. And many of us, I worked for radio we would have to be on air to say what the court had said at 10 o'clock, that's 15 minutes. The, the, the possibility of errors uh, in reporting on the judgment became so great that the best thing to do was to have people uh, kind of l- explain in layman's terms, this is what you're going to be reading. Uh, And I believe the public is better served by that practice. I don't for a second believe that the people who are giving that briefing want to be quoted uh, as to their take of a ruling that has been written by their bosses, the justices. But the other point on this is, and Peter, I'm going to use you as an example. When you covered the Meech Lake Accord negotiations, you open the national night after night, enough nights to give me nightmares with the words CBC news has learned. And if you had had to say where you got that information, you would not have been able to open the national by saying CBC news has learned, because the only reason the people who talk to you talk to you was because they were sources and you were going to protect them with your journalistic life. Now, if you, also are saying that to build trust in the media, we should stop having conversations with people who actually shed light on the things that we try to explain to the public. I, I'm i bailing out of, of this ship because the reason we cover Parliament Hill is actually to have relationships and get an understanding of why things are happening to then explain it. And the way that you get to why is not by shoving a microphone or a camera in the face of someone and saying give me your name and your badge number but that's just me okay
0: peter absolutely I, 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 I have no problem responding to both of you because i don't agree with either one of you and i think you took Good. i think you took what i said way over the top we're talking about um a, a number of public servants who came out to give explanations. For their ministers who had just spoken, everybody knows they're the ones who are accountable for the decisions the Canadian government is making. and then they put over to the officials here give the details not not be accountable, not explain why we're doing certain things just explain where the planes are coming from you know well, where what's they're the going value of let, their names. Let, let me let me finish. Um, so that's what they were doing. I listen. You don't need to tell me that there's lots of things that uh, you deal with uh, public servants and politicians on a not for attribution basis. Uh, that is part of the way we do our our work and how we get information. Um, you know, solid information, and advancing stories. This is a backgrounder, an a- explanation on uh, on stuff. It happens all the time. It happens around budgets. You know, they bring out the public servants, sit in the lockup, explain stuff. I get it. I understand all that. The issue here was, has it now gone too far to the point where this cloak of anonymity is draped over far too much of the, of, of the process? That's all he was raising. And he was connecting it to this issue that clearly he feels, and many journalists feel, and we've all talked about it, uh, about whether it's mistrust or misinformation and disinformation. That the public feels you're getting sucked in, that you don't even tell us who told you that, blah 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 blah, that kind of thing, and so I think that's all our friend from CP was trying to raise. He was not saying throw out all anonymity, throw out all anonymity.
2: No, but but but, that argument a little bit. The the value of knowing the name of an associate deputy minister or assistant deputy minister whose job it was to take the direction of the politicians and and to put it into practice, I don't know that I'm better informed or more trusting if I know the name of that person. I do wonder, especially on issues as controversial as this, what the impact might be on the life of that individual to have their name uh, kind of put out in public and have people kind of assume that they have a level of responsibility for the choice that they don't have, in fact. Um, so I'm kind of looking for the upside in knowing the name of these people and I can see the downside. So that, that's really where I'm coming from on a Chantelle, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump in there.
1: No, it's okay. I, 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 am totally with Bruce on this. Not only do I not see the upside, but I believe that this is like putting a band-aid on, on a scrap on a knee when actually your arm is bleeding. The reason why people say you're saying all these things and you won't even tell us is not about the logistics of how a plane is going to be leaving Tel Aviv for Athens. But the, the, the odds... That by putting names, you will suddenly be telling people, well, if the plane doesn't land on time, it's this guy's fault. Is really high. It's not journalists who are uh, going to briefings who are disinforming. It's people who are using any names and any information that they see to twist it into something that it is not. And that's, uh, I, I just don't see... This as what, a, a what, remedy what to the, uh,
0: transparency. What if the senior government official that's speaking on behalf of uh, the ministers is the minister's chief of staff or policy advisor or or, or whatever? Yeah, but that's <laughs> not who gives those briefings. As no, 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 you well no, know, no, these no, no, technical
1: briefings are technical.
0: Uh, okay. Right? I, I get it. I'm trying to talk about the different briefings that are given at different times uh, on different issues by whether it's a public servant or or, or whether it's a, one of the staff of the prime minister's office or a minister's office. Should there be a difference then?
1: I have not attended very many briefings given by chiefs of staffs of ministers. Well, or principal of the advisors, time. Chiefs whatever. Chiefs of they staff keep... or staffers, but political staffers by and large, if they're talking to you. They're not talking not for attribution at the briefing. They're talking to you off the record.
2: Off the record, or for background, but
0: the uh, yeah, but they've, I I think think I've also right. been I've they, also been at once where they stand at the microphone, whether it's a G7s or or what have you, and you know it, it happens. The I mean, uh, basically, what you're saying, I
1: I think we're kind of into the weeds of uh, the nuts and bolts of factual reporting rather than into the malaise over the so many times you read this line, sources told whatever media, uh, and we cannot tell you who they are because they were not allowed to talk about whatever issue. This has become a, a common sentence. It has. It never it- refers to, to, yes, but those are not the people that you would be naming as a result of a briefing. They are the people that you were not naming back when- right. CBC had learned stuff.
0: <laughs> okay, well, we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> I, I'm not shifting my opinion on this because I think it is a—it's an issue out there for, um, for uh, for consumers of news. They want to know where it's coming from. They want to be what Bruce talked about earlier about transparency. And they want more transparency on the part of everybody.
2: If you're going to keep going on this, then. It's not going to yeah. be the last word. I got I, I got the,
0: I got and, the last word. I always get the last word. And we're word.
1: not going to change our minds. So.
0: <laughs> None of <laughs> us are going to change our minds. Uh, okay. Well, glad we settled that, and I'm feeling very good about how it was settled. So let's move on <laughs> to a different topic, um, uh, the NDP. We'll get to it right after our last break. Mm. Okay, we're back uh, for our final segment of Good Talk for this week. Chantelle's in uh, Banff, Alberta. Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm in uh, Stratford, Ontario. <laughs> um, final uh, segment is about the NDP. They're having their convention this week. This is, uh, you know, all the parties have had some form of convention or caucus in the last few weeks, and we're, it's been interesting watching how they um, put their strategy together. So Jagmeet Singh arrives, uh, pro- I'm sure he wished it hadn't been this week as it turns out, um, because of the situation in the Middle East, which is always, um, uh, an, an issue at NDP, um, conventions and, and, and get togethers because there can be a real difference of opinion on, on this and it's exhibited at the NDP. So he's got that, he's got a leadership review vote, um, coming up this weekend, uh, What is, and the constant discussion about whether or not they should have done this deal with the Liberals to keep the Liberals in power until the next election, uh, if it lasts that long, the agreement that is. Um, What is our, uh, what is your take? Because I have no opinion on this, one way or the other. What is, (laughs) I have nothing to say about this. Because uh, having won one argument, why would I I I want to get into another one? Uh, Chantal, always what, have yeah, Chantel, What are you? Uh, what are you looking for this weekend on this subject?
1: I'm convinced that the people around Singh, when they saw the events last weekend were like everyone else horrified, but then consternation set in as to the timing of the convention. What are the odds that you are going to have your first face to face convention in years, and it's going to happen in the in the middle of this crisis? The, for people who aren't familiar with NDP conventions, the Palestine issue is to the NDP with the abortion rights issue is to the conservatives. A really divisive issue where people you think we have strong views about should name, whether you should name public officials. It's nothing compared to the strong views on opposite sides um, within the NDP on Palestine and Israel. Uh, and it goes the full range of the stuff that we saw this week. Indeed, some of the comments on social media that raised the most eyebrows came from allies of the NDP. Uh, QP uh, president, for instance, uh, who seemed to think that what happened last weekend was a sign of a, a, a positive sign of resistance. He since tried to. Uh, reshape his words, but uh, the impact was strong. An MPP, the MPP for the writing, where the meeting is taking place in Hamilton, who is an NDP MPP, who uh, has been staring down her leader over a tweet that went along the the lines of, uh, you know, whatever happened there, shows uh, what happens when settlers force people to... uh, to live in the way that people live in Gaza, etc. So clearly there will be a discussion there, and clearly there is a risk for the NDP and the, the, the tenor of the discussion and the clips. It's always the clips that, that kill you. If you're the NDP, that's not what you want the convention to reflect, but sadly for the NDP, this is the top of the news story, and anything related to it, there's a peg there, and the main peg from the convention risks being uh, its divisions over the Palestine issues and whatever is set on the floor of the convention. Uh, I'm sure organizers of the convention understand that pretty well. But the other issue, which has nothing to do with Israel, has to do with the uh, supply agreement that the NDP struck with the liberals to keep them uh, in place possibly up to 2025 in exchange for some concessions. This is the first time that NDP members get to talk about this at the convention since the deal was struck. There are and there will be resolutions that basically call on the NDP to become more threatening, put an ultimatum to the government. If we don't get the pharmacare bill by the end of the year and the way we want it, uh, we want the NDP to pull the plug on this parliament and trigger an election. I'm guessing that what Jokmeet Singh and his advisors are hoping is that he manages to come out of the convention with his hands as free as possible going forward when it comes to the fate of the supply agreement because and I'm not the poster on this panel, I have seen not a single poll, as far as I know, that shows that the NDP would do better or much better in an election anytime soon than it has in the past one. And its position of influence, which is great for a fourth party, is going to be in the balance of the next election. There is no way that the NDP in the face of a majority government, especially conservative, will ever have... Announce of the influence that it currently has uh, under this agreement with the Liberals. So, two issues on which I think, by and large, Mister Singh is playing uh, is is using a shield rather than a sword to try to emerge from the convention in good shape.
0: Okay, you got a couple of minutes there, Bruce.
2: Uh, I think the NDP is either uh, at a moment where there is a a bigger existential risk uh, than I've seen for that party in a long time or a once in a generation opportunity to leapfrog the liberals uh, uh, in terms of uh, seats in the house after the next election. And um, the reason why I think the existential risk exists is that a lot of voters who would have generally been more open to or supportive of the NDP have started looking at that party now as, um, not really speaking for them, not really talking about the priorities that they care about. Uh, Maybe it's a function of looking like the most woke of the woke uh, politicians or the people who want you to hear that they have the best values on offer uh, as opposed to the best practical ideas. And we talked about this before. Um, The mood of voters is uh, I don't want to change my values, but I don't just want to talk about values. I want to talk about practical ideas and the NDP when it talks about practical ideas sometimes sounds like it takes the most idealistic or ideological version of an issue and turns that into an idea. And I think that's out of touch with the time. So they, I think they are at risk and we've seen some evidence of, uh, uh, of union voters that you would normally expect to be allied with the NDP, moving more towards the Conservatives, moving uh, over the consideration of the Liberals. And I think this is a big part of Pierre Polyev's strategy. He's talking to uh, working people, especially working men. Um, And by working, I really mean kind of blue collar or unionized um, voters. And he's talking about very practical issues. He's not inviting them to join his side of the culture war. He's talking about cheaper houses, cheaper food, uh, more doctors, um, that kind of thing. uh, Less government and maybe lower taxes too. Um, So I think that's the... uh, that's the risk uh, that the NDP has is how do they manage not just this current issue and the and the fracture that you see in the NDP on how to deal with Israel, but um, how do they deal with that drift of those those progressive voters? The opportunity, I think, lies, and I see you signaling that I have very little time left, so that, I'll be really that's quick right. about this. Very little Lies in the fact that even though Jagmeet Singh is not as popular as he was a few years ago, he's not really disliked that much. Uh, but he does have an advantage over Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau is not hated by very many people. But Justin Trudeau finds a, a much bigger number of people saying, I'm tired of him. And uh, I'll put some research together on that next week. But that's a point of clarification, which makes J- Jagmeet Singh have a little bit of opportunity there uh, relative to the Liberals that wouldn't have existed in the last two elections. Okay.
0: And just uh, as one quick point of clarification it was that for attribution or not for attribution what you just said there
2: you see my face here it is
1: <laughs> can you see how we can't give up on this
0: <laughs> we won that one though oh, it's over yeah sure, sure you <laughs> I'm not going there um okay listen uh, great conversation uh, parts of it were outstanding parts of it <laughs> Two thirds. Yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk again in a week's time. Have a great, uh, have a great weekend. Uh, Chantel and Bruce. You too. Okay. Take care. Um, And uh, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you all again on Monday.